Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, and you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you might know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to be talking about the death of the key change. So I mentioned this to you, and you hadn't heard of this. Is that correct? Yeah, that that is correct. I have maybe, maybe thankfully completely missed this discourse. I've been trying to okay. avoid online discourse a little bit lately, so that that might be why. That's fair. There are good reasons to not be on Twitter these days, but I still am. But yeah, this was sort of going around music Twitter. So it started uh, when a guy called Chris Dallariva published an article uh, uh, sort of looking at every number one song from uh, 1958 to 2022 and charted out a clear decline in the number of key changes in those songs. And like, I'm probably going to spend a little bit of time in this talking about like uh, talking about like negatives that I have with the argument he's making. But I do want to start out by saying that I, I, on its own, this is an interesting observation. This is the sort of thing music theorists do. This is when there's no value judgment attached to it. I think that's a really interesting thought. And it's a really interesting trend that you can explore, yeah. right? Like I, I'm, I'm all for that conceptually, but I'm sure that you're about to tell me that there's been value judgment placed on that observation. This is part of why I wanted to like separate this out is because I don't think he was placing much of a value yeah. judgment here. Uh, it was more like an interesting phenomenon that he wanted to explore. And so like I just I want to separate out the initial presentation of the idea from the discourse that followed so that I'm not just like ragging on this dude too hard for something that largely wasn't his fault. Sort of from there, this picked up a little bit. There was some conversation in like music theory, Twitter circles, uh, Largely in the space of people being like, huh, neat. But, you know, obviously there was a little bit of pickup from people being like, this is a bad thing for some reason. But the big thing that kicked off, that made this to the point where I felt like I probably needed to, like, say stuff is that NPR published an article about it. They did a thing. It was, it was you know, typical, like, journalist sees a story, goes, talks to one expert, and then writes a thing that sort of understands the story. Uh, the expert they talked to happened to be a guy called Dan Charnas, who is actually pretty cool. Uh, and I have no issue with anything he said in this either. He's the author of Dilla Time, which is a great biography of Jay Dilla, if anyone's oh, looking for one of those. Highly recommend that book. One of my favorite music books I've read in a long time. Unrelated to the current discussion, though. A large part of it kicked off in my circles because of the NP when they posted the article, they used a fairly deceptive poll quote in the tweet that implied Charnas was saying that like songs should have key changes, that this was bad that mm. they didn't have them, which is not what he was saying if you read the article. Anyway, from there you saw a lot of musicians and, you know, music fans and ever like weighing in about how this was a like a decline in music quality and a decline in like, you know, Side. How, how musical complexity was going downward and like we we weren't making complex music anymore and the npr article also sort of ended with like a an argument for like funding music education because that's how you get complex and interesting music which is really frustrating to me because yeah. you should fund music education yeah <laughs> but not so you get more key changes you should fund music education so people understand why you don't need more key changes is there anything else you want to get into off the top before yeah. we dive into this, though? Actually, because uh, I'm going to start ranting. Yeah, so I think I, I would like to sort of start by looking at the specific thing and then sort of expand out into larger questions about, you know, how this sort of thing happens, why this sort of thing. But I, like, yeah. I do, I do yeah. want to start, if that's okay, by focusing more on the specific question of key changes and why this is maybe not the thing that people are saying it is in the first place this is on topic for that. Like one of the first things that like, yeah, sure. I kind of want to, 
my my gut reaction to that is that key changes are not necessarily a measure of complexity in music. They do add a yeah. degree of complexity. Yeah. But you know, like, Don't Stop Believing doing a key change does not make it a musically complex song. You know, there's nothing that yeah. complex about that key change. And there's a thousand other things that can be, you know, and are, you know, more complex happening in modern music right now. And again, put all of this with the asterisk that complexity doesn't really matter. It, it's not a measure of value in sure. any way. It's yeah, just a of measure course. of complexity. No, I think this is sort of one of the things that's really interesting to me. And I think I've seen other music theorists talk about this as well. And I think it's sort of really interesting to us as observers is that like... Most of the examples that these discussions are citing are what we would call a direct modulation, which is something like Man in the Mirror or something like Living on a Prayer, those sorts of things yeah. where you're just playing a thing and then you take it. Love on Top is famously for, full of these, but you take these and then just shift everything up a little bit. I think Don't Stop Believing is as well. I think Living yeah. on the Prayer is actually the one that I was thinking when I said Don't Stop Believing, but, you know, it... Th- I'm yeah. not actually sure Don't Stop Believing has a key yeah. change. I. Would have to go listen to that song if it's not, and you're listening to this, and you're like, what key change are they talking about? Yeah, it might not I was exist. definitely thinking of it. living on a prayer. E- yeah, either way, though. The point is, like, there's, there's plenty of songs where you're, you're playing the chorus, and then, like, you take that same chorus, and you play the whole thing up a whole step, or a yeah. half step, or whatever. And that's, you know, a pretty normal thing. And, like, for a long time in music discourse, that was the bad kind of modulation. That was the boring kind, the kind that didn't show any sort of complexity. Whereas what you wanted to do, quote unquote, wanted here, but what you wanted to do was a pivot modulation where you hit it and you did like use some chords that were in both keys to sort of smooth the transition and make it so that you didn't actually notice that you had changed keys until you were already there. That was the thing that showed musical sophistication in that, or at least in, in the discourse. That was the thing you were supposed to do. It was like classical composers did. It was what a lot of like interesting jazz modulations did and it's when we talk about like quote-unquote interesting modulations that's what we're talking about and so seeing this discussion but like lumping in direct modulations with the pivot modulations is really interesting just as someone who is aware of how that discourse tends to go in more academic like old school uh, music circles because this is the thing that people are complaining about is just not generally recognized as a marker of musical complexity in the first yeah. place. Yeah. It's largely a marker of musical amateurishness is what it has historically been, which is not to say that it is that, to be clear, but that's been its reputation for a long time. And that, I think, leads to one of my major methodological issues with the original article, is that it never actually defines what it means by a key change. Mm. Like, there's no... It sort of assumes that you'll know what that means. It explains what a key is, and then it talks about, you know, oh, there's a song that's in a different key. It goes in two different keys. But there's, like, a lot of different ways that you can do that. Like, are we counting something like a relative modulation, where you go from, like, D major to B minor, and none of the notes change, but you have a new root? Are we counting a parallel modulation, where you go from D major to D minor, and the root stays the same, but the notes change? Are we counting, like, a harmonic melodic divorce, which is... That's a concept that I'm a little iffy on in terms of music theory stuff, but like there's certainly like hybrid tonality stuff or like double tonic complexes, all of these things where a song can sort of exist in two different keys at the same time without really clashing like polytonality would. And so that we have all of these sophisticated models for all of these interesting kinds of like harmonic ambiguity, basically. I don't love the word ambiguity in this context, but it's one I'm going to use, I guess. But like these sorts of 
like places where the song isn't quite in one key or another. And that's, I think, a lot of why you see a decline in key changes is you're seeing a decline in the importance of the key as a concept. Like that's been a huge thing over the last 30 years or so of music is that keys just aren't as relevant. And so key changes don't really mean anything because you have to be in a key to change keys. And so it's one of those, again, this is why this is an interesting observation on its own, is that it is evidence that people aren't investing themselves as heavily in the concept of a key. But then to ascribe value judgment to that means that you are attaching a certain sense of like importantness to one specific approach to tonality as opposed to others. Like, I mean, one big one is blues tonality, right? Blues yeah. tonality famously mixes major and minor sounds all over the place. It doesn't sound wrong in a blues song to sing a flat three over a major chord. Like, that's just sort of a bluesy sound. And that's fine. But it means that you then have to, you're asking like, oh, are we in major or minor here? We're sort of in neither. We're not really in a key. We're in the blues. And that, again, if you're going to do this sort of, I guess that this is it's part of a broader movement of like computational musicology, uh, which can do a lot of really interesting things. I'm like very interested in the potential for it. But one of the big problems is that before you do stats, you really have to define your terms very precisely. And that feels like what's missing here is a sense of like what exactly we're actually measuring. Because until we have that, we're not measuring anything. Honestly, what it makes me think of is, have you ever read the book Why Fish Don't Exist? It's a really phenomenal science book by Lulu Miller. I haven't read the book. I am familiar with the argument, though. Yeah, yeah. But as essentially, for those who, who haven't read the book and aren't familiar with the argument, one of the things that it talks about is the way that we're kind of so obsessed with taxonomizing stuff that often we end up yeah. grouping stuff together that actually taxonomically isn't really that useful information for us to group together. The The example with, with fish is that the only thing that fish have in common is that they live underwater. And that's actually, there's a whole bunch of different species, yeah. a whole bunch of stu stuff that, you know, grouping them all as fish. The example she uses in the book is kind of like grouping everything that lives on a mountain as being the same kind of thing, right? And I think, I feel like there's- Yeah, I mean, the there's yeah. a lot of that going on with this kind of ambiguous grouping of key changes. Because like you said, like a key change can mean yeah. so many different things. And when you're just kind of without defining, throwing that term out there, you, you know, there's not necessarily a solid foundation for what we're calling a key change. And that leads to these kinds of false conclusions. That That's sort of the, the thing that happens a lot with the dissemination of musical, of, of like high level music theory stuff is that like, we sort of have to use, or I, I guess it's not even necessarily that, it's just the, the use of terms in general, the way that musicians talk is so full of ambiguity. Yeah. Right? Like there's so much space for like, we, we use the same words to mean a lot of different things. We use the same symbols to mean a lot of different things. We use different symbols to mean the same things. It's just like, there's so much, because these are organically developed communal languages between groups of experts who aren't always talking to each other. It's just not like, like I talk about the difference between a, a pivot modulation and a direct modulation, but like a lot of people wouldn't recognize that that's a difference. Like, wouldn't necessarily, they might not hear them the same way, but they wouldn't necessarily recognize that one of them is, you know, 
a more complex way to change keys or a more subtle way to change keys or whatever. They may, may not even recognize... I think a lot of people, when they think key change, will just think of the direct modulation. They won't think of the pivot modulation at all because that's not a thing that you really notice in the same way. And so relying on that sort of easy-to-communicate version of language runs the risk of missing out on important context. Because again, we're just sort of... The thing is that it, I think he totally reasonably assumed that anyone reading the article would know what he meant by a key change. And I think most people do. It's just that it's not clear that what he means by a key change is what most people think of. What they know he means isn't necessarily the same thing as what he means, and what he means isn't necessarily the same thing as what he is implying he means. Well, I think this is something that happens uh, a lot with music theory. It also happens with a lot of science reporting in general. Yeah. What happens is you kind of have somebody working in one bubble, assuming an audience that is sort of in on a certain discourse or has a certain knowledge of terminology or that sort of thing. And then that article yeah. gets picked up by someone who's kind of in an adjacent but overlapping bubble. But then yeah. they end up bringing it to a wider people who are then two degrees removed from this place with no context. And, you know, like you said, like these words might mean different things to people. They might have uh, different sorts of implications um, to different audiences. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think a big part of this is not just the original article, but then it being filtered through NPR, where I don't know who wrote the NPR article. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to like, I don't, I don't want to like dump on them either. Like they, they're, that's sort of how a lot of this journalism works is that you just, you find an expert, you talk to them, you get the story out and it's just something clickable and you move on. And it's not, that's not great, but that's, that's the reality of that ecosystem right now. And so I'm not, don't want to like imply that this person is a uniquely, uniquely bad at their yeah. job or anything. I don't want to be mean to them. They're fine. I'm sure. And, and I think that's a problem of the, the sort of Twitter ecosphere too, where, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, an article like this comes out and it's just kind of, you know, an interesting story that someone hears on NPR someday as they're driving in their car and they, yeah. you know, say to their friends, hey, did you know key changes are going down? But on Twitter, it it becomes, it snowballs yeah. into this big discourse yeah. and then everything is suddenly a moral panic about the state of music right now. Yeah, it, it's very much a discourse machine and that's... You know, and, and and I think a lot of that, like one of one of the main things that I, I'm thinking about this, and one of the main reasons I want to talk about it is because, and this is getting into some of that more broad questioning yeah. stuff, is that like for the most part, pop journalism on music theory done by people who are not themselves music theorists is very designed to imply that music theory's job is to determine what is and is not good yeah. music, and that that is just because. It's one of those things where, like, I get it, right? I get how that happens. I don't like that it happens, but it's it's just, it makes sense to me that, like, that's, it's a simpler story. It's a very easy story to say, like, oh, this thing is happening and that means that this music is good or bad. But it just, you see this over and over where, like, someone will publish an article in some major news thing saying, like, oh, music theory proves that this song that everyone likes is good, or music theory proves that this artist people don't like is bad. And, like, it winds up being, again, a way of generating discourse and a way of 
being more clickable, partly being more accessible to a general audience. Anything that starts with the music theory proves is a red flag. You know, yeah. like music theory's yeah. job is not to prove stuff. Right. But that's, I think, a large part of the narrative around it. I think part of that comes from the relative prevalence of science communication as opposed to arts and humanities communication. Yes. Like, and th this is not to put any sort of, like, anything on the shoulders of, like, my science communication colleagues. Like, a lot of them are great. Not all of them, but not all the mus my music communication colleagues are great either. That's just the reality of the job. But, like, a lot of people who do that work are very careful and serious, and they take their responsibilities seriously, and they do a lot of really interesting stuff. At the end of the day, the fact that people are much more familiar with the scientific approach to knowledge means that they expect us to do that as well. They expect us to be doing basically mythbusters where we're going in and testing a hypothesis and determining whether this song is good or whether it's bad based on our secret formulas that tell us which songs are good, which we have, but we don't share those with the public. <laughs> so the secret formulas actually tell us that Limp Biscuits Behind Blue Eyes is the only good song. Oh God, we haven't referenced that in like a year. Yeah, I know. That was a deep pull. But yeah. Truly, yeah, deep ghost notes cut. But yeah, no, we do we do love the Limp Biscuits cover behind blue eyes. You're actually required to love it in order to get a, a PhD in music theory. Those are the rules. That's how they they judge you at music school. Yeah, no, that that's your final test. Your dissertation has to be a one sentence declaration that the Limp Biscuit cover of Behind Blue Eyes is good. Anyway. This has been a very real and serious insight into music theory academia, but moving on, uh, my point is that I think well, one of the things that has been a big thing for me for a while and has bothered me for a while is just the way that science has successfully become a brand in modern discourse. Like separate from the idea of like actual scientific research or whatever, just the idea of like doing science, like the... You know, like the, the, the like, yeah, science type attitude, yeah, that yeah, sort of thing. The, I there you science, go. Yeah. yeah. Like that sort of thing where it's just, it's not really about like wanting to do science because like I know scientists and what they do is like sit in a lab for like most of the time staring at whatever thing they're researching. Maybe it's Petri dishes, maybe it's rocks, maybe it's bugs, whatever. And, you know, doing tiny little adjustments and it's, it's hard and interesting work and it produces like valuable results. But like there's this, like pop idea of it that I, I I don't know that it's good for science either. Yeah. But it certainly isn't good for non-scientific knowledge pursuits to view that as how you approach knowledge. And this idea that, because again, it's one of the things where like, if you talk to scientists a lot of the time, they'll tell you science's job isn't to prove things either. Like scientists' job at best is to disprove things. Yeah. And then whatever things you have left are your best guess until you disprove those too. And so that, that sort of approach gets lost and then it gets translated onto music academia and like and just the arts and humanities in general in ways that you know you see this with history too history hits a lot of this where people are expecting them to do science science type research and you just don't have the data and you can't run controlled trials you just you have to go with you have to go with what you have it's much more limited than being able to set up a lab environment and just evolve a set of bacteria or whatever you're doing especially with kind of bringing it back in toward music theory broadly and toward this conversation yeah. specifically. I think one of the big things too is that these kinds of dialogues always touch on some of the, like a lot of the main themes we talk about in Ghost Notes a lot. Like one of the things that I think is going on here is that people 
tie so much of their identity to music. Remember that episode? Yeah, that's, see, I'm yep. full of throwbacks. <laughs> they tie so much of their identity. Continuity. Yeah. <laughs> They tie their identity to this music, and then because their identity is so tied to it, they want, you know, some kind of quote-unquote scientific, quote-unquote objective. They want some sort of backing to justify what their opinion is. And a lot of people's opinion is that music used to be better. The main yeah. reason, there's, there's a couple main reasons behind that opinion. Uh, one is just that, Statistically, uh, there's been a lot of research that suggests people just like the songs that came out when they were younger because they were younger and more involved. Yep. But then the other thing, the other aspect of that is things like the sieve of time, where you're seeing all of the music that's coming out right now with none of the context, and you know the the bad stuff falls through the cracks. That's that that sort of thing. We've we've talked about these things a lot before, yep. but essentially what happens is. You have people who put their identity on this musical opinion and old music is good is new music is bad is the oldest music opinion out there. You know, I'm sure oh, yeah. you could find like Greek writers talking about how the music the kids play <laughs> these days, you know, isn't as, you, you know, ever since Pythagoras came along, this music stuff's been garbage. In one of his videos, Adam used a quote from I want to say Aristotle uh, that was saying basically that, uh, but I could be I could be misremembering. But yeah, it would not surprise me because like that argument is as old as arguments, you know? Yeah, because of all this kind of conflagration, conflagration, that's not a word, uh, is it? I don't know. Anyway, it, it is a word. Uh, it doesn't mean what you're using it to mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is a word. <laughs> Burnout brain, baby. Um, yeah. <laughs> A conflict. It does kind of mean that, actually. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Confluence, I believe, is the word That's you're looking the one. for. Yeah, yeah. There's the confluence of these ideas along with the rise of pop science. And you have all of these people kind of coming together and looking for this sort of thing. And then it happens all yeah. of the time. Like, like this... This argument is not, I mean, the the one about key changes specifically is new. Like, yeah. I actually haven't seen this before, but it's a continuation of an argument that, you know, every year, every couple months, one of these exact same pattern rises and it always is the exact same result. Yeah. And this is, the, again, the thing that's really frustrating from a music theory perspective is that like this sort of, especially... Because you see this a lot with computational musicology, where they're like taking large data sets of songs, ascribing some like data to them, and then looking for trends. And like this is seems to be particularly vulnerable to this sort of distortion. And it's frustrating because it's really interesting. Like almost always when you do find these trends, I want to know why. I'm interested in what's going on. A lot of my colleagues are interested in what's going on. Again, this is the initial result of this, like when this graph was first starting to flow or chart, I guess, whichever. But when it was starting to float around music theory, Twitter, the general response was like, huh, neat. Wonder what that's about. And like, I think that's a really, again, even setting aside the methodological issue of like defining a key change. Yeah, yeah. It implies that there's, implies that something has changed and we love it when something changes because it lets us dive in and figure out what. That's an invitation to explore to most music theorists. But to the general public, it often comes across again as a value judgment. And so as this started to reach outside of our sphere, you saw a lot more 
misuse, I don't, I don't want to say misuse, but misinterpretation of what this means. And again, and it's frustrating because I want to see this sort of result. I want to encourage people to do this, but you create this system where if I'm doing this sort of research, my results are inevitably going to be misconstrued and going to be used for arguments I don't necessarily support, then maybe people do it less. And it's also becomes harder to take computational musicology seriously when, again, it you should. It's interesting. Yeah. But it's hard to sort of separate it from this sort of narrative. And again, another really frustrating part of this particular one, which you see often, but like not always with these sorts of things, but was sort of the music education angle where people were like, you want more songs with key changes? You got to fund music education. And it's like, no, you got to fund music education, but that's not why. But yeah, I think when you look at the way these sorts of things proliferate, a, a lot of it is people wanting to say that you know, like music used to be better in, in the old days or whatever, but you still see this around like modern songs too. You see this like people will publish things about how like this hit song is great. And oh, yeah, because music theory says, because it has secondary dominance or whatever. And I think part of this is music theory's fault. Like I, I will take some ownership on this point, which is that like, we love using fancy terminology. We love dressing up simple observations with technical terms that make us sound smart. And part of that is, you know, is necessity, right? Like part of that is that we are talking about very specific, precise, and somewhat esoteric things that we want to be able to label in ways that other people will understand, and so we need to use specific language. On the other hand, a non-trivial par part of it is also that, like, these are the words we use, and these are, there's, like, almost a pride to it, where, yeah. you know, like, one of my big things that I've been doing for a long time now is I've been referring to the note that a scale is built on as the root, there's a certain branch of music theorist and a certain branch of music theory student who hates when I do that, because that's supposed to be the tonic, which is a gibberish word that means soda, whereas root is a thing something grows out of, and people can relate to it, and it makes it much more accessible. But I think a lot of that, again, comes back to so when I'm talking about like a direct modulation versus like a pivot modulation. Those are terms most people don't know. Those are terms most people haven't encountered. And so if I use either of them, I sound very smart. Yeah. And so I, I don't think this is necessarily the case with the key change one specifically, but a lot of times you will see this happen in these sorts of articles where they're just relying on the fact that a term sounds fancy. Well, like, you know, appoggiatura or whatever, like that's, that's Italian. That must be like a real music thing. And it's just like, it's a note that it's like a non-harmonic tone on a emphasize. Actually, I should not try and define an appoggiatura. That's a whole thing. So if you have a different definition, don't at me. I don't care. Yeah, your channel is living proof of the fact that you can look at a lot of songs and there's interesting stuff going on theoretically there because, yeah. you know, if a song is good, there's probably something cool going on. And as we've established before, all music is bad, so there's nothing cool. No, but actually, like, yeah. basically every song ever written has something interesting to it. And the job of music theory isn't separating which songs are, you know, more interesting or less yeah. interesting or better or worse. The job is just looking at songs and being like, hey, why does this song make me feel this thing? You know, why does this song yeah. sound like it does? Why does this song sound weird? Why does this song sound scary? And so many of those things, like you could write these kinds of pop music theory articles proving why, you know, this yeah. artist was secretly a genius about 
basically anybody because that's just yeah, what music theory is doing. It's just describing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of confirmation bias. But this has been like a big like a challenge that I've been setting myself for years is just to try and do videos about simpler and simpler seeming songs. And at this point, like my longest video ever is about Landslide by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Which is like on the surface seems like such a basic song. And yet it's haunting and beautiful. And there's like once you dig into it, there's actually a lot going on under the surface, but it would be very easy to miss by just listening to it and be like, oh, that's just a simple little like ballad thing. It's good, but it just like, you know, it's it's one of those things where I, I've especially tried to move away from harmonic complexity as a primary driver of interest in the sort songs that I analyze. Like I try not to do songs where most, I, I, it's not that I try not to do songs, it's, it's that I don't try to pick songs that are going to yeah. give me interesting chords. And like, because I'm picking songs that I like and I'm not typically drawn specifically to really interesting harmony, that means I often wind up without a lot to talk about in the harmony. Like I've, over the course of like the last year or two, I've like every time I've, or not every time, but a lot of times when I've started doing a song analysis, I've been looking at a song as like, is this the time where I can get away with just not talking about the chords at all? <laughs> can I pull this off? And so far I haven't, but I keep looking. I keep trying to see like, can I maybe just not care about the chords at all? Will will anyone notice? It, it's, again, one of those things where complexity, where you look for complexity, right? And this is a big part of, you know, historically, music theory has been very focused on harmony. Uh, and so we've developed a very nuanced and complicated language for describing harmony, whereas we haven't really for for instance, timbre. This is still a very new emerging field in music theory, and yet it's such a huge part of modern music production. Like the yeah. sound of your synth, the sound of your kick, the sound of your snare. These are like these are such important decisions that producers will spend hours toiling over to try and get exactly the right sound, and we just have no real vocabulary to talk about it. And so it winds up sounding like that thing isn't complex, despite it requiring so much thought and care in order to get it exactly I, right. And this is, again, yeah, one of those things where you look at key changes and it's just a lot of what's happening is that whatever complexity budget these pop songs had is just being spent elsewhere. Well, and I think it's also just like trends come and go. Taste comes and goes. People yeah. like these things happen. I mean, again, another place where there's a ton of complexity right now that we're kind of just starting to see the scholarship emerge on is flow, you know? And you could write a piece about how, you know, music of the 60s was not complex at all because, look, they yeah. had no flow. What are the accent patterns on your triplets, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's a very, like... There is a risk when you take our approach, and I definitely have found myself falling into this risk sometimes uh, to be like, well, nothing's that notable. Things come and change. And, you know, music just is music and has, you know, I sometimes yeah. that, that can be a bit of a trap. But in reality, like you said, like the fact that there are less key changes is really interesting. It's a really, especially, you know, that's the kind of thing where if someone does that and you know, someone sees that and a couple more people do scholarship on, you know, what kinds of key changes uh, are still around, what kinds aren't, things like that. Like, that's the kind of exploratory topic that I feel like when scholarship is working well, like that opens up the discourse for people to explore. And from that, people are able to, you know, pull 
and and th- that's where a lot of kind of my job as yeah. the musicologist comes in is the what's going on culturally that can explain this trend what's happening technologically is there a technological reason for this you know is there a historical reason these sorts of things but instead what happens with with this piece is you know this discourse happens and you know i want to like jump off a cliff before reading somebody's piece to yeah. take about this yeah it's interesting that you mentioned flow because in in the original article and some of the discourse surrounding it like one of the points about why maybe key changes have declined over the last 20 30 years is that the last 20 30 years is the mainstream arrival and rise of hip-hop yeah the original article makes the claim that if you were to change keys in like a biggie song it wouldn't change the way he raps and that's a big assumption yeah and i'm not gonna go that far that that i think is underestimating the relevance of pitch performance in hip-hop and rap uh but like it is true that there's not necessarily for a lot of reasons, as much an emphasis on keys and strong cadential structures in hip hop. And that's just not a primarily important part of that musical vocabulary, uh, which then leads to, you know, if, if there's not a heavy emphasis, again, like, like I was saying before, if it's if you're not strongly in a key already, if that's not like an important part of what you're doing, then it doesn't really mean much to change keys. It's just arbitrary. It's an arbitrary decision. Whereas if you're in a place where keys are a large part of, like if you're in like a power ballad, right? Yeah. Like something like Total Eclipse of the Heart. Does Total Eclipse of the Heart have a key change? I think so. It feels like it should. It feels like a song that would have a key change. I haven't listened to it in a while, so I, I could be misremembering. But like that sort of song, like the key change plays a very specific functional role. Uh, Whereas in a song like California Love, it's not that it wouldn't affect how Tupac was rapping there. Like, I don't think that, I I think that in a lot of cases, rappers do respond to the pitch environment around them. That, you know, is, is a fairly normal thing to do instinctively, even if you're not doing it intentionally. But I think that it wouldn't have the same impact as a key change as the key change in living on a prayer or like man in the mirror or whatever. It's a different vocabulary. And that's, that's not a value judgment. That's not to imply that it's a better or worse vocabulary. Again, there are a lot of other things that hip hop puts a lot more of its complexity into like again, flow and timbre as well. How, how like, you know, the sound of your kick, et cetera, et cetera. And so that this is not to say anything negative about hip hop. Yeah. It's just that, there is less of an emphasis on a key center, so there's less of a need for key changes. I think one of the other things, too, is just that, like, you know, you talk about the power ballad as kind of one of these homes for key changes, and the power ballad is so, so tied to cultural trends of a time, right? Like, maybe the reason there was a decline in key change, also, you know, when you look at the cultural thing, what you have is through the 80s, you have this kind of condensing of the power ballad and these this kind of like specific approach to music that then the 90s comes around and grunge kicks that down yeah. and is very kind of tired of these big elaborate key change driven things and grunge does not have a lot of key changes grunge is very yeah. it's born out of punk it's very simple music deliberately so and so well okay Point well taken, though. But um, it doesn't have the same kinds of... What's a better way to phrase it, I guess? I guess it doesn't have the same levels of harmonic complexity um, often. Yeah. Which, I mean, 
yeah, varies because you look at a band like Soundgarden and they definitely yeah. do. Yeah. But you look at a band like Nirvana and because, you know, grunge is one of those things like every musical movement where it just covers a lot of different bands, actually. I mean, grunge is also interesting because it's it's pulling from punk, which is not a very harmonically complex and metal, which tends to be pretty harmonically complex. So where bands fall on the spectrum does change that. But yeah, anyways, like there's. These trends rise and fall, often in direct response to oversaturation of a certain kind of thing. And, you know, the yeah. the man in the mirror kind of key change, it's very effective, but also, like, it is overwrought yeah. if that's what you're hearing all of the time. Yeah, it gets corny. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, any any musical gesture gets corny if everyone does it. Uh, but that... Except the 12-bar blues. That has never gotten corny. Except the 12-bar blues, Yeah. That's that is certainly true. But like if you look at I, I guess any attention grabbing musical gesture, yeah, yeah. which is sort of the point of the 12 bar blues is very structural. Yeah. Whereas like a, especially like a direct modulation is supposed to be like, hey, check out this yeah, cool thing I can flashy. do. Yeah. And eventually if I've heard enough people do it, it's not impressive anymore. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, if you look at the charts in the original article, it was like back in I think it was like the 70s was when it was like at its peak was like 30% of all the songs he looked at had like key changes. And that's a lot of songs. Yeah. But like, I think another, another point here, which is related, um, as we've talked about before, how, you know, genres and movements and just personal tastes are largely defined by value, by musical values. And complexity is a musical value. It's something that you can either want or you cannot, right? Like, you know, if dream theater puts out a song that is not particularly complicated, has like, you know, basic 12-bar blues structure with a simple melody on top, I would be confused. Or like if Meshuggah did that, or, you know, something like that. But on the other hand, if Pete Seeger put out a song with like seven different time signatures... Honestly, that sounds like it would rule. (laughs) It would rule? Uh, But he was like, you know, singing like microtones and stuff like that. Shredding on the banjo. 17 tone equal temperament. It's just like, you'd be weirded out because that's not what Pete Seeger does. It's not a musical that even setting aside like harmonic complexity, specifically complexity is not a value of the sort of music Pete Seeger does. Whereas it is very much a value of the sort of music Meshuggah does. And so you have all of these, even even setting aside like part of part of what's interesting about Prague stuff and a lot of like more advanced jazz stuff is like is finding new areas of complexity is finding areas that we didn't think about and seeing if we can make those complicated too and that's really interesting if that's what you're into again like this comes back to what we were saying before about complex is not a value judgment it's just complex well like the jazz is a great example because like that's exactly what happened with modal jazz right and with kind of blue and in general like bebop pushed to a place of so much complexity with chord changes that Miles Davis felt that melody had kind of died so he found a new yeah. a, a new kind of and modal jazz is complex in its own way it's it's very yeah. complex oh, yeah. it's very complex but it's also yeah. in a different way it's it's a lot more about yeah. riding a vibe than it is about you know yeah. doing cartwheels like hard bop is yeah it also doesn't have that many key changes yeah Exactly. Or does, depending on how you define your terms. Well, and but like something that's been in my head a lot lately that's kind of adjacent to this and on our on our topics of sure. complexity is so I 
like for a long time have loved uh, like 70s prog rock, uh, probably one of my favorite genres. Um, and that is something that has a lot of key changes, has yeah. a lot of pro- uh, has a lot of complexity. But lately I've been a lot more into progressive soul, which was happening at the same time. And it's it's really interesting because it's birthed out of a lot of the same stuff, birthed out of psychedelic movements, you know, kind of happening at the same time. Yeah. But a lot of the places that progressive soul finds its complexity is in rhythms and not necessarily yeah. a lot of prog rock, especially when you get into like King Crimson and stuff like that is about kind of doing these wild acrobatic changes, which are really impressive. But then a lot of progressive soul is about, can we take this one groove and ride this groove for 12 minutes and have it be interesting the entire time? Which in my mind is just as much of a musical feat, you know, even though it doesn't have the same harmonic complexity, it is a very, you know, it's called progressive soul for a reason. It is, it is doing progressive stuff it's just taking a different approach to it so you know if you were gonna measure those by key changes yeah prog rock will have a lot more because like you were saying that's just the value of prog rock if you were to measure it by like yeah you know rhythmic complexity or you know even actually progressive soul is also some depth of groove and and super timbral too like it's a music that's so it, it it lives on production and these tones yeah and depth of groove and yeah like so i think they make an interesting side by side because in terms of their yeah in terms of their ethos i think they're actually both very similar in that they're both kind of taking the popular music of the 60s and trying to stretch it out to its logical extreme they're just stretching it out on different fronts yeah i think that's again this is the reason that i find a lot of this stuff very interesting absent the value judgments if you just look at trends as they are and you take at face value that they're good and that you know both ends of them are good too right this is not to say that the decline in key changes means music is getting better it's just that you know on both ends they were doing good music but they are doing different kinds of music why has that value changed what has that value changed to what is it doing instead? All, all of those sorts of questions open up and it just sort of gets flattened as soon as you start asking, like, should this have happened? Yeah. Was this a good thing for music? It's just like, and again, it, it plays to this idea of the uninformed musical public. Yeah. Like this idea that people listening to music don't understand what good music is and that therefore people are just making music for, and I hate saying this, but I'm going to say it for the sake of my straw man, uh, the lowest common denominator. Yeah. <sighs> Which, anyway, like it's one of those things that just creates this this narrative that, I guess this comes back to the music as identity thing, is it lets you position yourself as the sophisticated listener, yeah. as the person who understands what good music is, and conveniently, it's the kind of music you wanted to listen to anyway. It kills the exciting aspects of exploring this stuff, right? It kind of, it completely undercuts the reason why we do music research in the first place. Yeah, it's sort of, a a lot of my approach to analysis and a lot of my philosophy of analysis is that it's important to approach music on its own terms. Yes. And like each piece of music on its own terms and that going in with the assumption that having more of this thing makes it better music is just the laziest way to do that. Like, I could write a song with 50 key changes. It wouldn't be hard. Yeah. It might not be good, 
but I could do it. It's just, especially if we're like counting direct modulations, I can just pick a new key every bar. I don't care. But like, you just got to get that onto the charts with 50 key changes and skew yeah. the average of number of key changes yeah. for just really. Just don't, don't worry, 2022. I got you. Yeah. Be the outlier there. <laughs> Real weird outlier. Bring the bell curve up. <laughs> it's not hard to write key changes, especially not direct modulations, but even like any kind of key change. It's not that difficult. It's something you learn in like theory three at the latest. Like, and this is a thing we've been doing and we've been talking about doing and figuring out how to do well for centuries. And so the idea that this is a metric of how to do music well, it misses out on what creativity is. Right? Like, it, it's so easy to do a formulaic song with a bunch of key changes because we have really good formulas for key changes. And so, and again, like, this is, I, I do want to, again, separate out the argument that Dalla Riva was making versus yeah. the discourse yeah. that happened afterwards. Because I think, like, there is an extent in his thing to which he does seem to be saying that more key changes is better. He talks, for instance, about Sicko Mode as, like, one of the few recent songs that does have key changes and talks about how that sets it apart and makes it cool and interesting. And it does, I think, in the environment where you don't have key changes, doing key changes in that sort of context is interesting. But it doesn't necessarily make it better than the things surrounding it. It just makes it interestingly different. Yeah. The way trends are, if suddenly everyone started making songs like Sicko Mode, Sicko Mode would cease to be as interesting. You know, it, I, I mean, it would yeah. probably still maintain interesting. Well, songs like Sicko Mode would start, yeah. It's a real shame because it is a cool trend and I, I would love to see, you know, actual interesting discourse on why that trend is and what that trend represents for music rather than, you know, yeah. simple good, bad and and you know there's you've you've brought up some stuff that uh in this podcast that is you know the cool stuff that you can talk about there is kind of you know how does the rise of hip hop change the way that music is valued you know things like that there's a lot of interesting meat to be pulled at there but it feels like people are just kind of taking the smallest bite and then throwing the chunk away yeah and it's just when when i see the arguments of like oh this is why we need to fund music education. This is sort of what I think about is like, I think if we had, but which I mean, um, I don't know. I, I want to be a little careful on that point because historically a lot of music education has been explicitly designed to reinforce these ideas too. Yeah. Like that's, that's sort of a big confounding factor here is that like to a large extent, we have a long history of using music education to enforce specific ideas about what music is supposed to be and some of those some of that history is just annoying some of that history is explicitly kind of horrific yeah in the way that it was used um for colonialism purposes and to wipe out local cultures but you know e even even setting that aside which you know that isn't something we should necessarily set aside, but is its own conversation in a lot of ways. Uh, but even just setting aside and just looking at sort of the modern discourse of people, you know, learning that key changes are complex music. Like, I think that at its heart, funding music education more isn't going to solve that on its own. We need to be having conversations about what good music education looks like. And that, again, is a whole other conversation as well. But I think that it involves less learning about specific mechanics and more learning about understanding trends, understanding the way these mechanics are developed. Because like anything you learn in a music class is not going to be super relevant to you 20 years from now. 
But any any yeah. specific mechanic you learn is probably not going to be, you know, not necessarily. Like, again, 12-bar blues, that's probably still a thing worth knowing and will be for quite a while. A lot of these techniques, a lot of these gestures become dated. Like, you look at, this is the thing they keep coming back to is, like, in the 80s, synthesizers sounded like the future. Yeah. They were the cool, hip new thing that, like, where suddenly everyone could do and they were like they were everywhere and it sounded great and it was just like it was so awesome that you could make whatever noises you wanted with this like keyboard thing and now in 2022 you can still do that but if you're using synthesizers that sound anything like 80 synthesizers it's going to sound like a throwback it's going to sound dated and it's not necessarily not going to work if that's what you're going for but it's going to have evoke a very specific time period because that specific set of sounds especially like you know the big ones like e-piano one and like the original 808 and stuff like that those are very time locked in our understanding of where what time they belong to because they were such big parts of a specific musical movement and that's always going to be the case with new musical gestures that's, yeah that's exactly like how you know 20 years from now there might be one of these pieces on you know trap beats don't exist in popular music anymore yeah right because that's that's yeah. like the trap beat is a great example of a musical gesture that I mean, I think we're I think we've we've passed peak trap already. But the last few yeah. years like like that, that is similar to the synthesizer thing. That is a gesture that sounded cool and exciting and was rhythmically new and interesting and and became ubiquitous. Right. And and the, and the fact that those things go out of style eventually is a good thing. Like, again, it, this is not to say that the things themselves were bad, but the fact that music doesn't sound like it used to is a good thing. Yes. Just across the board, unilaterally, like, actually, I don't know. That, that again, comes back to the idea of musical values. And I, I don't want to overstep on that point either, because, again, there is a lot of cool stuff you can do with throwback music. Yeah. With stuff that sounds like previous eras. Like, you could do some really cool, like, 60s rock and roll stuff today, and I would be like, oh, that's neat. But I feel like often... Even when people do throwback stuff, it's interesting because it's doing yeah. throwback with a modern context. You know, like a great example yeah. of a great example of that is like like Amy Winehouse was super interesting, not because she sounded exactly like Frank Sinatra. It was interesting because she was somebody no. doing Frank Sinatra style music in a modern context with lyrics that, uh, you know, that were more real to modern sexuality and modern, you know, yeah. identity and stuff like that. Like uh, often what is interesting about even throwbacks is the fact that they're doing something new with the throwback, you know, otherwise you're just yeah. like Greta Van Fleet and, you know, no shade, but shade. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but yeah, no, you, you look at something like get lucky or random access memories in general, and that's not really disco. It's yeah. 21st century disco. Exactly. And it's taking a lot of the things you would recognize in disco and doing it with modern production technology, modern production techniques, and evolving that idea. And I think that there's a lot of value in that too. But I, like, I, I mostly don't want to like come down too yeah. hard on like, you know, things have to change because like there's a lot of like, you know, classic folk stuff and that's like, is just not the tradition. Yeah. And that's fine. And again, it's, it's a musical value. And I, as someone who grew up listening to pop, rock, metal, tend to value some level of innovation, tend to value hearing things that I haven't heard before. And that's not universal, but. What we can say is like, I think pop music changes baked into the nature of pop music is yeah. change. And that's a good thing. And pop music yeah. should change. Pop very broadly, like popular, not like, you know. 
yeah, not, not like top, top 40, 40 specifically, yeah. but popular music. Because, because yeah, part of that is that it's aimed at uh, teenagers, especially. And so there's an inherent negative value towards sounding like the stuff your parents like. And that's, yeah, not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is, is part of the machine. In general, I think pop music is, uh, regardless of who it's aimed at, too, like, even if it is, there is pop music aimed more adult, uh, but in general, pop music is attempting to reflect its current historical moment in some way. That's pop music is always trying to sound like now. And what now is changes because the world is constantly in flux and... Yeah, so that's yeah. Trends come and go, and maybe yeah. key changes. You know, I I don't think that nobody's ever going to do key changes in music again. You know, I think in no. our lifetime we'll probably see a rise of key changes again because if this dearth maybe. happens, you know, someone will come yeah. and do something interesting with it, and people will be like, "Oh, that's interesting." I'm going to try to do that on my song, and I don't need to explain trends. You all yeah. know how tr- trends work. Again, again, we we may even see that just off sicko mode. Yeah. That, like, people are like, oh, that... And so who knows? It's it's. I don't want to predict the future too much, but it's just, again, a, a lot of the stuff is really interesting if you're willing to divorce it from the question of whether or not it's good. Yeah. And it becomes a lot less interesting if you're not. And I think the key changes thing is a really interesting example, but that this is just broadly a thing that happens a lot in music discourse. It's kind of a shame. Yeah, I think I think in music discourse, the the big question should not be, is it good? It should be, is it interesting? You know, is this trend good? Yeah. Is not is not useful. Is this trend interesting? Yeah. Is very useful. And I mean, there there is something to be said for the question of do I like this trend as well? Yes, like that, absolutely. If you separate it from a, a like objective value judgment, it's possible that you just like the sorts of music that do key changes a lot. Yeah. Like you just, you love power ballads. You fall asleep every night listening to Total Eclipse of the Heart. (laughs) And, you know, I don't know, maybe. I don't, that's, I'm I'm just describing Noah here, but. um, Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I got to look to my pillow and say, turn around. (laughs) (laughs) Just every now and then. (laughs) It's entirely reasonable to look at a musical trend and go, I don't like that. Yes. A hundred percent. Right? Like, it's entirely reasonable to see something that you love become less common and become less a part of the musical vocabulary and not be happy about it. And it's entirely reasonable to see something come into the musical vocabulary that doesn't work for you, that doesn't make sense to you, and be like, that's not for me. Yeah. And that's all fine. It's just extrapolating that out into whether or not the music is good and whether or not the change is good is where things get dangerous for me. Like, and again, I, I don't necessarily think that a lot of that there are a lot of interesting questions to ask there. Of like, you know, like if, if you love key changes and key changes go away, I don't think there's a lot that you can really learn about music by interrogating the fact that you're sad about that. Yeah. Uh, there's maybe something you can learn about yourself and your own tastes, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily the most insightful avenue. But I don't want to like tell people that they have to like every musical trend. I don't want that to be the message people take from this either. You're allowed to have your own tastes. And again, your tastes are going to be heavily informed by what you established during your teenage years because that's how the human brain works. Yeah. And... Yeah. The good thing to keep in mind is that your tastes are not a reflection of objective quality because objective yeah. quality doesn't exist. Yeah. No, all music is bad. Exactly. I think that's yeah. that's as good a place as any to end this discussion. I feel like I say this about every topic, yeah. but I feel like we could go back and forth on circles with this. And I'm sure in a couple months yeah. there will be, you know, 
another data-driven music theory Another piece. discourse, yeah. yeah. There's always another discourse, Noah. Although if Twitter dies, maybe I won't see it. Oh, that would be great. I hope what you can take from this as a listener is just to have some of the tools to look at these kinds of arguments because this is nothing, like we've said, this is nothing new. This is nothing original. These arguments come all of the time and all of the time it's the exact same thing. So hopefully you're a bit better equipped for the next time a discourse like this washes over the musical world. Yeah, because I think, you know, I said that, you know, in music theory, Twitter circles, we looked at the original result and went like, huh, neat. And that's true. But there was also a wave of like, oh, no. Yeah. Because we knew what was coming. Recognizing that you don't necessarily have to take this at face value can protect you from getting caught up in a lot of not great discourse. But, you know, if you like getting involved in not great discourse, do you. I'm not going to take that away from you. All right. I think that's it. (laughs) <laughs> I think I think I'm out. I think the tank's empty. Bye, everyone. Yep. Peace. <laughs>